In the early morning hours of March 18, 1990, a man named Richard Abath was working as a security guard at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. At 1.24 a.m., two men buzzed at a side entrance. Abath, seeing via a security camera that the men looked like police officers, decided to let them in. After a brief conversation, the two men subdued and handcuffed Abath, along with another security guard that was working at the museum that night. Over the course of the next 81 minutes, the two men stole 13 pieces of art, including a single painting by Johannes Vermeer, valued at more than $200 million. The two thieves then broke into the security director's office, removed the tapes from the security cameras, and left the empty frame of a Monet painting on the director's chair. At 2.45 a.m., the men left through the same side door and vanished into the night. At 8.15 a.m., museum employees arriving for work discovered the still-handcuffed guards and called the police, launching an investigation that would come to involve the FBI, the Irish Republican Army, hypnotists, gangsters, aspiring rock stars, and a $10 million reward. But nearly 30 years later, the Gardner heist, the largest theft of private property in history, remains unsolved. I'm Nate Hinchy, and this is Cool Shit, the podcast. This is a show about interesting topics from science, history, the arts, and more. In other words, if it fascinates me, I'm going to talk about it. I know that the world can sometimes seem like an awfully depressing place, but trust me when I say, there's some pretty cool shit out there. Isabella Stewart Gardner has been described as a shockingly unconventional woman. Though to be fair, for women who were born in 1840, there is a very low bar for what constitutes shocking behavior. For example, the fact that she showed up to a 1912 concert wearing a headband that read, Oh you Red Sox, apparently caused widespread panic among the city's bluebloods. But even by today's standards, Isabella's story is a fascinating one. The daughter of a wealthy linen merchant... She further improved her social standing by marrying Jack Gardner, scion of one of Boston's wealthiest and most influential families. In 1863, the couple had a son, Jackie Gardner. But before the boy had even turned two, he died from pneumonia. A year later, Isabella had a miscarriage and was told that she would never again bear children. Slipping into a deep depression, Isabella and Jack packed their bags and set out for Europe. Since she had been a child, Isabella had been passionate about art. When her father died, he left her $2.1 million, or the equivalent of about $40 million today. As she traveled across Europe, Isabella began buying up Rembrandts, Vermeers, and Titians for her own private collection. Finding and buying the art must have filled some void or given her some renewed sense of purpose, and she slowly began to emerge from her depression. Over the next 20 years, Isabella lived the kind of life that we all imagine we would live if we had millions of dollars. After missing a train, she rented another one to catch up with it. She smoked cigarettes and hosted boxing matches in her posh Beacon Street home. She was friends with some of the most interesting characters of her time. Writer Henry James called her, quote, not a woman, but a locomotive, unquote. Author John J. Chapman described her as, quote, a fairy in a machine shop, unquote. John Singer Sargent 
painted a portrait of Isabella with just enough cleavage that her husband Jack begged her not to display it, a wish she respected, until John died, at which point she promptly brought it out of storage. She had a friend who owned a zoo, and she would borrow lion cubs from him to play with. The press adored Isabella, dubbing her the Bohemian Millionaires. They would occasionally inflate stories about her. For example, the often told tale that she put the lions on a leash and walked them through downtown Boston probably didn't actually happen. But as Isabella herself would say, quote, don't spoil a good story by telling the truth, unquote. For all her mischief-making, though, Isabella's primary focus was always art. She and Jack had bought so many pieces that they began talking about building their own museum. And when Jack died in 1898, Isabella decided it was finally time. She bought a piece of land in the Fenway neighborhood of Boston and began to design a home-slash-museum modeled after 15th-century palaces in Vienna. She involved herself in every detail, driving architects, builders, painters, and gardeners crazy for four years in order to achieve her vision. She then spent another year painstakingly arranging her collection. In 1903, she invited 150 guests and 50 members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra to the formal opening. In typical Isabella style, she served champagne and donuts. If you've never been to the Gardner Museum, it's really something else. It's a massive stone building with this lush garden courtyard right in the middle. Each of its four floors has a series of rooms, halls, and balconies overlooking the courtyard, all of which are packed to the gills with art. Most of it is medieval or renaissance, but Isabella also collected Asian and Islamic pieces, rare books, furniture, tapestries, and basically anything else that caught her eye. There is, at least in my humble opinion, a fine line between eccentric millionaire art collector and people featured on that reality hoarding show on TLC, but Isabella Stewart Gardner walked that line beautifully. Everything that you see in the museum today is exactly how Isabella wanted it. She considered the building and the collection to be her legacy, and when she died in 1924, she left the museum with a $1 million endowment and strict instructions that nothing was to be added, removed, or altered in any way. The museum was to be enjoyed by the public exactly as she had built it, and it basically was, right up until March 18, 1990. Before reading up on the Gardner Heist, my only source of knowledge about art theft was the movie The Thomas Crown Affair, specifically the 1999 remake starring Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. And here's a fun fact. There's a scene in that movie where Pierce Brosnan's character is attending some fancy black tie ball, and he's supposed to be wearing a tuxedo. But when Brosnan had signed up to play James Bond in Goldeneye four years earlier, he signed a contract saying he would never wear a tuxedo in any other movie. So to get around that restriction, Brosnan, as Tom Crown, shows up to the ball wearing a loose white bow tie draped around his neck and his top button undone. It's still very clearly a tuxedo. But then again, the Can You Hear Me Now guy from the Verizon commercials is the spokesman for Sprint now, so these kinds of contracts might not be ironclad. Anyway, it turns out that Hollywood's version of an art thief might not have been entirely accurate. Most thefts are inside jobs, or at least involve a conspirator on the inside. Others are smash-and-grab jobs, where the thieves create some kind of diversion before running away with a painting or two. One of my favorite examples of that actually happened at the Gardner Museum itself, when, in 1970, a thief threw a bag of light bulbs onto the floor and then snatched a Rembrandt self-portrait from the wall in the ensuing confusion. 
I love that one in particular because I really want to believe this guy was brainstorming ways to rob the museum when a cartoon thought bubble with a light bulb in it appeared above his head and he says to himself, hold it, I've got an idea. Light bulbs. There are professional art thieves, don't get me wrong, but they usually deal in lesser known or less valuable works. The reason being is that it is really hard to sell stolen artwork. We tend to have this idea, again cultivated by Hollywood, that there are Russian billionaires out there who pour themselves a glass of vodka, play a few notes on a piano in their basement, and a bookcase draws back to reveal a stolen da Vinci that they then quietly admire while stroking a cat. And while this may be a real thing, there are no accounts of these kind of supervillain art lovers being caught with stolen masterpieces. So what you're left with in the real world are art thieves who are more opportunistic, and more than happy to return what they've stolen to museums and private collectors for what is essentially a ransom. And that's what makes the Gardner heist so intriguing. So like I said before, two men buzzed at a side entrance to the Gardner at 1.24 a.m. on March 18, 1990. Now March 17th is St. Patrick's Day, which meant that at 1 o'clock in the morning, the vast majority of Boston residents were either asleep, drunk, or at an AA meeting. Richard Abath, the 23-year-old aspiring musician who was working security at the Gardner that night, was likely bucking tradition by just being stoned, as he later admitted to police and FBI agents that he, quote-unquote, occasionally got high on the job. If you want to look up a picture of this guy, you'll see why my tone is dripping with sarcasm. So Abath looks at the display from the security camera and sees that the two guys buzzing look like cops. Abath has been told that absolutely no one should be permitted entry into the museum after it closes, but he doesn't know if this applies to the police. He decides to let them in. One of the men says that Abath looks like someone that the Boston police have an arrest warrant out for. And Abath, and I'm not judging, but again, probably high, starts freaking out. The cops put him in handcuffs, and a few minutes later, the other guard working that night came to the security desk and was also handcuffed. The two guards were then blindfolded, gagged, and handcuffed to pipes in the museum's basement. The thieves told them that they wouldn't be harmed so long as they didn't resist or try to call for help. Being paid only about five bucks an hour, the guards were probably more than happy to stay quiet and sit tight. At the end of the heist, the thieves would take the security camera footage and a printout of the museum's motion detector system. However, the data from the motion detectors was stored digitally as well so investigators have been able to piece together the route the thieves took through the museum. Their first stop, maybe with a sense of purpose, was the Dutch room on the second floor. The thieves first attempted to carefully remove a Rembrandt from its frame, but after seeing this was going to be too much trouble, they decided to just start cutting paintings from the frames. In the Dutch room, the thieves took two Rembrandt paintings. One was called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which depicted Jesus's miraculous calming of the sea and was the Dutch master's only known seascape. The thieves also took a painting by Johannes Vermeer called The Concert. Now, you can add art expert to the list of things that I'm not, but I imagine one of the reasons the concert has been valued at more than $200 million is because it's one of only 34 works created by Vermeer that still exists. The thieves also stole several drawings by Edgar Degas, a Chinese vase, and a bronze eagle from the top of a Napoleonic flag, which they might have mistaken for gold. A painting by Edouard Manet called Chez Tortoni was also stolen. Interestingly, 
This painting was taken from what's called the Blue Room, but motion detectors didn't pick up any movement in that room during the time of the heist. The detectors were working, however, as they logged Richard Abath's footsteps when he passed through that room on patrol at 12.27 and 12.53 a.m. What's also interesting is what the thieves left behind, like two Raphaels, a Botticelli, and Titian's The Rape of Europa, the most valuable painting in the entire museum. At around 2.45 a.m., the thieves went back to the basement and told the guards that if they didn't tell the cops anything about that night, they would be given a reward in about a year. Neither of the guards have reported being contacted by the thieves again. At 8.15 a.m., museum employees arrived to find the guards still bound and gagged. The frame of Shea Tortoni had been left on the museum's security director's chair, like some kind of taunt. All told, the 13 stolen pieces have been valued at just over $500 million. The FBI quickly took over from the Boston police, assigning agent Dan Falzone to lead the case. He was only 26 years old at the time, which doesn't make me feel great about what I've accomplished in my life so far. But then again, he didn't figure out who did it, so we're kind of even. The case drew an enormous amount of interest from the public, in large part because of the $1 million reward the Gardner put out for the return of the paintings, which would later balloon to $5 million in 1997 and $10 million in 2017. Right from the beginning, there were no shortage of leads for Falzone and his team of 30 agents to follow up on. For example, two women who were teaching English in Japan met an art collector who claimed to own the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The women went to the FBI, and after six months of diplomatic back and forth, agents with the first American search warrant ever issued in Japan arrived to examine the painting. It turned out to be a reproduction of the Rembrandt, in what has got to be the most embarrassing way to be caught in a lie ever. In 1994, then-museum director Anne Hawley received an anonymous message that promised the return of the art for a ransom of $2.6 million. Hawley was instructed to leave a coded message in the Boston Globe if she planned to cooperate, which she did, but the tipster never followed up. In 1997, a Boston Herald reporter was taken to a Brooklyn warehouse, to view what was claimed by career criminal William Youngsworth to be Rembrandt's The Storm. The reporter was given a vial of paint chips to help authenticate the painting, but experts later determined that while the paint was likely from a 16th century Dutch piece, it was not from The Storm. In 2015, FBI agents searched East Boston's Suffolk Downs horse racing track, where rumor had it the paintings had been deposited after the heist. Nothing was found. The FBI was forced to continue to follow these anonymous tips because it had very little physical evidence to work with. The thieves had worn gloves throughout the robbery, and so they left no fingerprints. They had disguised themselves, even going so far as to wear wax mustaches, so the police sketches just show two very generic white men. While the handcuffs and duct tape used by the thieves might later have been examined for DNA evidence, they were misplaced somewhere along the way. But the few legitimate leads and scant evidence all pointed in the same general direction. The Boston Mob. 
Let's take a look at some of the possible players. You gotta be nuts too. And you're gonna need a crew as nuts as you are. Who do you got in mind? At the age of 20, Miles Connor Jr. robbed the Forbes House Museum in his hometown of Milton, starting a career in art theft that was only occasionally interrupted by attempts to become a rock and roll musician. Connor admitted to planning the Gardner heist in 1988. Oh wait, shit, did I just solve this? No, unfortunately there's no shortage of people who have claimed, at some point or the other, to have been involved in the theft. Connor was in prison on drug charges in 1990. So while there's a chance he helped map out the robbery, he was not one of the two men who pulled the actual job. But Robert Donati, a.k.a. Bobby D., may have been. Donati was a member of the Providence-based Patriarcha crime family. In the 1970s and 80s, he and Miles Connor became friends, and the two, at least according to Connor, went on to commit several art thefts together, including stealing a Rembrandt from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Connor claims that he and Donati jointly came up with the plan to rob the gardener, including which pieces to target and the idea of wearing police uniforms to gain entrance into the museum. Donati also had a motive. The boss of the Patriarcha family, Vincent Ferrara, had been arrested in 1990 on charges of racketeering, extortion, and murder. Donati was a close ally of Ferrara, and he feared that with Ferrara behind bars, someone else might try to take over the leadership of the gang. And if that happened, Donati would likely be killed. Having heard about Miles Connor using stolen artwork as a way of reducing a prison sentence, Donati might have orchestrated the Gardner robbery in order to get the leverage he would need to have Ferrara freed. A prison informant would later tell a reporter that Donati told Ferrara that he had stolen the art, buried it somewhere, and would use it later to negotiate a lighter sentence. Unfortunately for both of them, Donati was found dead in 1991, beaten, stabbed 20 times, and with his throat cut from ear to ear. On the one hand, it seems open and shut. Donati had the means and the motive, and he's been linked to the crime by at least two people. And if Donati buried the art and then was killed shortly thereafter, either as part of a turf war or because of his involvement in the heist for some reason, it would explain why the artwork has never emerged despite a series of increasing rewards. It's out there buried somewhere, but nobody knows where it is. Still, much of Connor's story came out when he was trying to reduce another one of his prison sentences, so he had his own motivation to lie. He's also not a very reliable narrator. He's blamed some gaps in his story on memory loss from a heart attack he suffered in prison, and later added back in detail that he said he only remembered while under deep hypnosis. And maybe most importantly, the FBI has never seriously considered Donati as a suspect. They've spent quite a bit of time, however, investigating a man named Robert Gentile, a.k.a. Bobby the Cook. FBI agents have searched Gentile's home on more than one occasion, and while they didn't find any trace of the art, they did once find a listing of what each of the pieces might be able to fetch on the black market. At least three people have said that Gentile bragged about having the art while serving a prison sentence from 2013 to 2014. And in 2015, Gentile took a lie detector test, denying that he had any advanced knowledge of the crime or that he'd ever been in possession of the art. While polygraphs are not admissible or even that reliable sometimes, it's still kind of worth noting 
that the result of the test showed that there was only a 0.1% chance he was telling the truth. Gentile also may have tried to use the art to broker a reduced sentence for another criminal associate, who some believe to be David Turner. In his book, The Gardner Heist, which is a great read if you want to dive into this further, journalist Ulrich Bozer puts forth the theory that David Turner was one of the Gardner thieves. He builds a pretty good case. Turner has been implicated in robberies with very similar M.O.s. Several other underworld figures have indicated he was involved, and Turner himself has been coy in interviews about whether he played a role. He was tentatively identified by a college student who saw the two thieves waiting in a car on Palace Road before the robbery, and he does have a strong resemblance to the police sketch, generic as it may be. Still, the evidence against Turner is circumstantial at best. And it almost doesn't matter who the thieves were. It could have been any permutation of Boston gangsters. Miles Connor might have made the plan, but Bobby Donati carried it out. Donati worked at the TRC auto body shop with Bobby Gentile, and he might have handed the paintings over to him before he was killed. Gentile might then have tried to use the paintings as a bargaining chip to free the second thief, who might have been David Turner, before trying to sell them on the black market when that plan fell through. In the end, the answer we might have to content ourselves with is that they were just a couple of -of run-of-the-mill Boston criminals. Even the FBI seemingly doesn't care about publicly settling the question of who actually committed the robbery. They recently claimed to know the identity of the thieves, but have said both are now dead. And even if they weren't, the statute of limitations on the robbery has long since passed. But a provision added to the 1994 crime bill by Senator Ted Kennedy made it illegal to knowingly handle stolen art. So the question is no longer who took the art, but who has it now? One theory holds that infamous Boston mob boss Whitey Bulger either orchestrated the heist or came into possession of the art after it had gone down. Bulger had a reputation for taking a cut of criminal activities in Boston, so it wouldn't altogether be surprising if he was somehow involved. He's also inextricably linked with the Boston FBI. Bulger's rise to power was due in large part to his relationship with John Connolly, an FBI agent who convinced Bulger to become a federal informant. But if Connolly ever did believe what he was doing was in the best interest of justice, he must have come to realize at some point that he was being used. Bulger would rat out his competition and then swoop in to take their business and their turf when the authorities acted on Bulger's inside information. Connolly and possibly more than 18 other agents would look out for Bulger, even going so far as to warn him of a secret indictment in 1995, allowing Bulger to flee before he could be arrested. Paul Hendry, nicknamed Turbo Paul, is a reformed art fence, or someone who takes stolen works from the thieves and finds buyers for them. And let me just stop to say, I claimed in my Siege of Boston podcast that we're no longer coming up with good names for people. I stand corrected. The mafia is still bringing it. Anyway, Turbo claimed that Whitey Bulger once offered Turbo's business partner the Gardner paintings for $10 million. When Turbo's business partner countered with a $1 million offer, Bulger walked away from the table. Turbo then heard that Bulger had shipped the paintings to Ireland to help support the Irish Republican Army. At first glance, it sounds crazy, but some pieces do fit. For one, a drug runner named Joe Murray, who worked closely with Whitey Bulger, once told an undercover FBI agent that he was in possessions of paintings from, quote, 
the biggest art heist ever, unquote. A few weeks later, Murray was found dead, shot five times with a 357 Magnum. His wife confessed to the murder, but since she only weighed 125 pounds and likely would have been blown halfway across the room by the recoil of a Magnum revolver, the undercover FBI agent believed Bolger had ordered the hit. Whitey did believe himself to be a true Irish patriot, and he had previously shipped guns and ammunition to the IRA. The IRA had also previously stolen and ransomed art, having taken and sold back paintings by Johannes Vermeer three times before. And finally, during the Gardner heist itself, one of the guards said that a thief had called him mate when tying him up in the basement. So the thief was either from a place where that word is used regularly, like Ireland, or he had seen Crocodile Dundee when it came out in 1986. It's tough to tell. But besides hearsay, there's really nothing concrete that links Bolger to the Gardner heist. And if he did have the art, surely he would have tried to use it after finally being arrested in 2011 and given two consecutive life sentences in 2013. But for almost 20 years, the Boston Bureau of the FBI had undeniably been corrupted by the Boston mob. So even if Bolger wasn't involved, it raises questions about their credibility. Like in 1991, FBI agents installed a listening device in the TRC auto body garage, where Robert Donati, Robert Gentile, and a number of other gangsters worked, hoping to catch wind of the location of the Gardner paintings. But just a few hours after the bug had been installed, the men began having all of their conversations outside. There's no way of knowing for sure, but the possibility exists that some agents in the Boston office of the FBI, for some reason, didn't want the paintings found. Still, the FBI investigation continues, and it even continues to uncover new clues. In 2013, the FBI announced a possible breakthrough. I'll read from their press release. Quote, The FBI believes, with a high degree of confidence, that in the years after the theft, the art was transported to Connecticut and the Philadelphia region, and some of the art was taken to Philadelphia, where it was offered for sale by those responsible for the theft. With that same confidence, we have identified the thieves, who are members of a criminal organization with a base in the Mid-Atlantic States and New England. Unquote. The FBI did not provide details on why it believes the art was in Philadelphia, and it appealed to the public because it still doesn't know the current whereabouts of the stolen paintings. Still, the announcement gave some hope that the paintings might not have been buried, lost, or destroyed. And in 2015, the FBI clarified that while they believe they know the identity of the thieves, they also believe them, as I said before, to be dead. At the same time, the FBI released footage from the Gardner security cameras taken the night before the robbery. At roughly 1 a.m. on March 17th, slightly more than 24 hours before the theft, a car similar to the one described by the college student who had ID'd David Turner can be seen pulling up next to the side entrance of the museum. A man then exits the car, and just as would happen the following night, is allowed to enter. While the FBI refrained from editorializing when releasing the footage, it looks to me, a certified amateur Gardner High sleuth, to be a rehearsal. So you may be asking yourself, who let the man into the museum on March 17th? Well, it might not come as a surprise that it was the very same person who let the thieves in the next night, Richard Abath. Abath has categorically denied any involvement in the robbery, but it's hard now not to see him as a co-conspirator. 
he submitted notice of his resignation a little less than two weeks before the robbery. He opened the side entrance on the night of the heist, despite a clear prohibition against doing so. His excuse that he only did so because he thought the two men were police officers is shattered by the fact that he did the exact same thing the night before to a man who was clearly a civilian. And while I can understand the dude wanting to cover his ass by not admitting he was letting people into the museum on the regular, how did he not mention the events the night before to the FBI? And if he did, why would the FBI have waited 25 years to review those tapes? Abath as the inside man might also help to explain the Shea Tortoni mystery. As you may remember, that Monet painting was taken from the Blue Room, despite the fact that the motion detectors didn't track any movement in there when the thieves were plundering the museum. One possible explanation is that Abath swiped the Monet on one of his walkthroughs earlier that night. The Monet's frame was also left behind on the security director's chair, a strangely personal act for criminals with no connection to the museum. It's a lot less strange, though, if it was done instead by a disgruntled employee who wanted to give one more little fuck you to his boss on his way out the door. The main reason the FBI originally discounted Abath's connection to the theft was because they thought he was just too dim-witted to be a part of it. But you don't have to be all that smart to be manipulated. And that seems like exactly what happened to Richard Abath. Since they were both rock musicians, maybe Abath and Miles Connor found themselves jamming together one night. Maybe Connor, making conversation, asked Abath where he worked, and Abath told him he was pulling night duty at the gardener until he got his big break. Maybe Connor remembered this connection when he began planning to rob the gardener, and maybe he told others about the possibility of an inside man as well. Or maybe Abath really just was a poor bastard who made a stupid mistake. I obviously can't say for sure. But if he was a part of it, and it kind of looks like he was, then he's a piece of shit. Don't get me wrong. I want to believe Ben Affleck when he talks about the power of redemption. No matter how much you change, you still have to pay the price for the things you've done. So I got a long road. But I know I'll see you again. This side or the other. But the people who were responsible for this robbery are not debonair thieves or anti-heroes or anything like that. They're just pieces of shit. Say what you will about Isabella Stewart Gardner having enough money to literally buy her own museum. At least she got it right in the end. Art is a public good. It is meant for the education and the enjoyment of all people. So while I don't want to glorify the heist, I will say that it's the reason that after 15 years living in this town, I finally went to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. The frames of the stolen paintings still hang on the wall. They remind visitors that the robbery was a part of the museum's history, but not the defining part. The 13 missing pieces might never be recovered, but even if they aren't, there will still be plenty of cool shit to see. Thank you all for listening. If you've liked what you've heard so far, I'd be over the moon if you rate, review, subscribe to, and share cool shit. You can also drop us a line, either via email at coolshitcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at coolshitcast. Cool Shit's music 
is by Arnie Bang Hughesby. Thanks, Arnie. Until next time. <laughs>